but figuring out what are some critical changes that you can affect and try out without risking the entire farm is critical. I've seen it in in, in farmers here in, in the San Luis Valley, farmers in, in the western slope of Colorado, farmers in California who've related, we pushed the pedal a little too fast on, on making changes and it bit us in the butt. In this episode of Voices from the Field, NCAT Sustainable Agriculture Specialist, Martin Garana, who works out of NCAT's office in Davis, California, has a conversation with Patrick O'Neill of Soil Health Services in Alamosa, Colorado. They discuss Patrick's projects, including consulting with farmers on cover crop systems, volunteer work with the Rio Grande Farm Park, and a conservation district project that focuses on fungal-dominated compost. Let's listen. Hi, this is Martin Garana, um, talking to you from Alamosa, Colorado. And today I'm here with Patrick O'Neill, proprietor of Soil Health Services in Southern Colorado, um, the San Luis Valley, which Alamosa is a part of. Welcome, Patrick. Thanks, Martin. Nice to be here. Pat, we've been friends for a while now, but uh, can you give a little brief background on yourself? Sure. I grew up in a farm in Madera, California. My parents grew grapes and made raisins. And as a young kid, I, I checked cotton fields, but um, eventually wound up at Cal Poly and got a crop science degree. That's where I met up with Martine. And uh, after that, I served as a Franciscan lay missioner in Brazil, worked with small farm families and landless families gaining access to land and and worked on food production systems there. And then after that, had a brief step back in California, working at T&D Woolly Farms for about a year and a half, helping run their CSA. And that was in, in Madera, California, and then came back to a place where I'd worked previously as an, an intern during college. And, and that was the San Luis Valley of Colorado, where now is my home. Um, and that's where, where I'm based out of here in Southern Colorado. And since then, uh, have developed a, a consulting service called Soil Health Services and, um, uh, also, uh, picked up a master's degree along the way from Washington State University in soil science. Yeah, so I work full time as an, an agricultural consultant advising on soil health to farmers and ranchers in this region. Okay, so that's basically what, well, soil health services is all about. Yeah, it's it's trying to figure out what are the long term and short term goals of of the farmer or rancher. How do those intersect with soil health, and how can we actually effectively grow? healthier soils um, as we're, we're attempting to grow profitable crops and, 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 and have profitable livestock operations. So can you describe the, the crops that are grown in the, in this area? Sure. I, I work mo- most of my time I spend in, in the San Luis Valley, which is an, an arid high elevation, um, almost exclusively irrigated region. And in the region of the Western slope, kind of between Grand Junction and, Montrose, Colorado. There's a, a, a belt of of land there that um, ha, is intensively farmed and grows vegetables. Like uh, you know, on the western slope, it'd be sweet corn and onions. I spent a lot of time with, mm-hmm. and then crops that are in rotation with those, including lots of cover crops, lots of diversity of cover crops that are grazed or or hayed. And then in the Sandless Valley, which is where my home is, 
the primary cash crop here is potatoes. And then in rotation with that, uh, small grains and, and again, many different cover crops that are used as, as ground cover or as green manure crops for biofeedment purposes or as grazing crops, integrating cattle and, and sheep into those systems. Okay. So with your service and, and, and your, your work, can you summarize some of the uh, projects that you've been involved with that, you know, are what's keeping you busy pretty much? Sure. So my day to day is uh, much less with project work. It's more with consulting with farmers and ranchers, going to their fields and, and advising them on a real regular basis, often um, on the growth of their crops and, and pastures. But other projects that I've picked up along the way and fit into my, my normal day-to-day include really drilling down and, and researching heavily what cover crops work in these different environments for these different purposes. So which cover crops would the farmers who are in potato rotations, for instance, actually be benefiting if they're limited on water, for instance, which is the case in all the places where I work. Can they afford the water for their traditional cash crops or would they be benefited more by reducing the water that they input on a, a three-year or four-year uh, rolling average by changing out some of those traditional cash crops like barley with crops that can can be lower water use or, or managed with less water and still get greater gains on the primary cash crop like potatoes. So an instance would be going from a, a two-year rotation of potatoes and barley to a three-year rotation that would integrate potatoes, sorghum, sudan grass, or or variety of mixes of sorghum, sudan grass, um, and other species grazed, and then an additional uh, grazing crop the next growing season, which our growing seasons in Colorado are especially short relative to, to a lot of the other country, but we have between a 90 and 150 day growing season, depending on, on, on elevation and and uh, frost rate period. But extending those rotations out allows for um, healthier cash crops, often for pest control, especially for disease control, uh, soil-borne diseases. But it also allows for unique opportunities for bringing on cattle or bringing on sheep and gaining income from either the sale of those animals or uh, pasture rents for those, for those gap years. And so a lot of the work that I've done on cover cropping has been in identifying which species and which varieties work especially well in mixes or standalones to, to benefit not only forage production on limited water use, but also to assure we've got a longer period of root exudates pumping into the, into the soil. So more photosynthates are being produced per unit area, more carbon is cycling into those, those soils, more microbial microbial activities happening, more nutrient cycling so that when we pop in back into our primary cash crop, we have the, the, the most optimal condition of, of, of soil health, of soil structure, of nutrient availability as, as we can manage for. That's a project. That's what my master's research was, was really focused in on was, was looking at host status for nematodes of a particular concern for potatoes and um, managing to minimize the threat of nematode damage in a potato system while maximizing the potential for productivity, both for forage and, and biomass and carbon accretion and eventual potato production and increased quality of potato yields. The other projects that I work on, um, I spend a fair amount of time as a volunteer with a community-based project here in Alamosa that has um, extent 
with the community abroad called the Rio Grande Farm Park. And that's a community space that, that used to be a school that eventually became a, a land that was, it was a school that was surrounded by farmland. And that eventually turned into an agricultural property that was under permanent conservation easement to stay in agricultural use and for open space for the community. So there's a trail system that goes around it. It's heavily used by bicyclists and runners and, and walk, people who walk from one side of town to another in Alamosa and can enjoy the open spaces and on their walk through it. But beyond that, the agricultural land is made available to local farmers who are really interested in growing their own food and also farmers who are interested in growing food for sale under the local farmer's market and the local food hub that we have that, that does regional distribution. And so that incubator farm model we brought into our region so that we could get access for mostly immigrant farmers who are now residents of our region to be able to, to access land and water and basic resources. Yeah, uh, coincidentally, we, we stumble in to a meeting yesterday at the rear Grand Park. Yeah, yeah. At the, when they had a, a kind of a crisis issue guarding water. Uh, do you want to discuss that a little bit? Sure. So we live in a very arid region. It's 7,500 feet in elevation. Uh, that's the valley floor surrounded, surrounded by mountains that are between 10,000 and 14,000 feet. And it stays cold for the better part of the year here. And our, our growing season, typically frost free period is between June 10th and September 15th. So it's, it's not an especially long season. When we have water deliveries through snow melt that comes down our ditches, uh, which are known as acequias, acequias in the especially old communities where they were hand dug by the original Hispanic uh, settlers ditches. In the, in the, in other communities where, where they're settled by a mixed population of white folk, uh, from kind of Eastern United States and uh, people coming up from Santa Fe and Taos, um, Hispanic communities. Yeah. The, the, this, these ditch runs, unlined ditches come across the San Luis Valley from, in this instance, from the San Juan Mountains in the West and bring stone melt water to the, the central part and where it can be drawn for irrigation. In this instance, this particular property has uh, a relatively senior water right. However, because of the impacts of climate change, because of the impacts of wild weather and drought, we've, we've got sustained drought. We don't have much snow. We've had massive dust storms and massive wind storms that have evaporated a lot of our snowpack. Right now we're sitting at 30% of snowpack of, of a 20 year average, which we're in bad shape. This particular property is irrigated exclusively by snow melt water. And the 20 or so farmers who utilize these 38 acres of, of land yesterday were, were meeting to discuss what do we do if the water turns off in July? July. Yeah. And, you know, we, our planting season is now today's May 7th, I think. And, and people are putting seeds in the ground now and anticipating what could we plant or what could we prepare for that is actually going to make something useful that turns into food or marketable product by July. And so yesterday's discussion that we happened to stumble into was on that very topic. And, and the crisis component was normally we have water into August and September, and now we're looking at turning off in July and well, what can be done relative to resourcing additional water from somewhere else or growing the things that it can give at least something to harvest by mid to late July. And so yeah. that, that was 
the topic of conversation of yesterday at that rear ground farm park. Yes, it was it was quite uh, heated and interesting to observe. Mark your calendars for the 8th Annual Latino Farmer Conference on November 17th and 18th in Escondido, California. This annual Sustainable Agriculture Conference brings together Latino farmers, the agriculture industry, and advocates for sustainability. Join NCAT and NRCS for two days of workshops, local farm visits, networking, and learning, all in Spanish. Register today at latinofarmerconference.ncat.org. Oh, another project. Yeah. Yes. Another project. Yeah. I spend a lot of time with this. Yes. Um, so I also serve as a conservation district supervisor. So in California, we call resource conservation districts. Here in, in Colorado, we often refer to them as solid water conservation districts. These are the districts that formed kind of out of the Dust Bowl years in, in the 1930s and 40s. Um, in my instance, it's the Mosca Hooper Conservation District that covers Alamosa County. And, and we work with a lot of farmers and ranchers in providing resources for soil conservation, water conservation, and, and trying to help incentivize or, or provide educational resources for that purpose. In this instance, as a supervisor, amongst other supervisors, we put together a project based on research done in southern New Mexico by Dr. David Johnson, who's a, a molecular biologist who's been for years researching the impact of utilizing relatively small amounts of fungal-rich vermicomposts in agricultural systems that effectively jumpstart these systems. Largely, these are soils that are bacterially dominated, often very t heavily tilled or heavily fertilized with synthetic fertilizers, sometimes heavily impacted by synthetic pesticides. But often these soils develop into bacterial dominated systems, which tend not to be immensely productive. And when uh, Dr. David Johnson was tasked with trying to figure out how to make uh, more productive systems effectively with his research work utilizing animal wastes. He found, he happened upon a method of composting that he termed the static pile bioreactor. And so you, you can look it up on YouTube, on online, look up Dr. David Johnson, New Mexico State University. He's also an adjunct professor at Chico State. Anyway, the thrust of the matter is he figured out a way to make a compost that was actually very rich in fungi, which was highly unusual because most of the composts that are commercially available in the United States that I'm familiar with tend to be heavily turned windrow type composts and they develop into a very bacterial rich, bacterial dominated media that can be used um, on on agricultural lands. But it tends to to be adding something bacterial dominated into soils that often are also very bacterial dominated. And the result is the the impact and the, the outcome that you get from even large additions of bacterial compost often is a relatively unpredictable impact. Not only you get some, some amount of nutrient loading from your inputs, but relative to the to the impact on the biology of the of the soil that you're introducing it to, it's very hard to predict what likely you're going to experience. In the instance of Dr. David Johnson's research, he demonstrated use of small amounts of this fungal-based compost that he developed a method for making and shared that open source with the world, effectively saw great increases in, in productivity and soil carbon with the use of this technology, this idea. And so through our conservation district, we heard about this, talked it up amongst our community, had a chance to interact personally with Dr. David Johnson in our community, 
and really got the ball rolling with uh, a little over a dozen farmers and ranchers in our in our community who put money in the pot to say we'd like to see a commercial scale version of what Dr. Johnson proposes happen and, and available to us. And so our district facilitated with a local composting company to take on this project and, and really develop something new that wasn't available previously, which is a fungal rich vermicompost material. And we've had a pretty good success so far in, in those initial uh, adopters taking that on, having good success with crop productivity and, and being to build, begin to build carbon back in their soils. And now they're utilizing it in, in ways with extract, much less compost extract. So much less volume of material, but, but still seeing some of those same benefits. And so we're excited about having this available locally where before for years and years, decades, really, we, we, we were at a loss for where to find such rich material. Yes. Yeah, I think the, the key to that is the fact that um, you were able or the composter was able to figure out how to concentrate the, the solution and make it less bulky, of course. And then, um, yeah, to figure out a system that, that was replicable so that each time that with each batch, it came out pretty much the same as before. Yeah. And again, that concentration on prior to this development which uh, much credit to the composter whose name is Dave West from Fungal Link. That's the company name. Uh, they figured out a way to batch in large scale this this static pile of compost and and get a pretty consistent product in the end and something that's accessible. Yeah. Well, fantastic. It it, it, see, it sounds like um, part of your success with these programs, especially the cover crop and the compost stuff, is convincing farmers to do it. Well, much less convincing anybody to do, right. to do anything. It's more starting a dialogue with a farmer or a rancher and trying to figure out, you know, in the end, what do they want to be about? And what everybody who's, who is in this is in it to be able to make, make their living or some portion of their living. Um, so that's a given that it's got to be profitable or affordable. But beyond that, there's a lot of other reasons why people farm and ranch. And getting to the bottom of what are the goals, what are the things that drive them, what's what's really important to them, that helps create at least a touchstone that we can come back to time and again to make sure we say we want to be about soil health, or you're telling me as a farmer or as a rancher, you want to make sure that your kids have something too, you know, that they've got land that's worth coming back to if they're if they're away at school, and that that there's a future here. And so looking forward, if these are some of the things that get identified in these conversations. And it's not so much about convincing them, well, you got to try this. Well, you got to try that. You know, it's, it's not just grabbing for the, the most shiny thing or the, you know, the, the next greatest, latest, greatest. Mm-hmm. It's more understanding where are you coming from? What do you value? Is there a conservation component to that? And then for your system, for the, for the things that you make money on, where can you tweak? Where can you wiggle to also expand your opportunity to build soil health, to build diversity in your system, to introduce more opportunities for insect diversity and that may not necessarily be pest diversity. So you can, you can expand the window when things are blooming. So you can expand the window when, when things are actually green and growing in your fields without blowing the budget of water without blowing the budget of cash for, for expensive seeds mm-hmm. and balancing these values of, of economy with conservation or with diversity, with integration of livestock. You know, if, if the kids are really excited about, you know, FFA animals are really excited about 
about raising animals and they're less excited about cropping and, and your system is mainly cropping, is there a way to accommodate both? And perhaps they can be complementary. So those are the kinds of conversations that aren't so much about convincing. They're more about uh, dialogue and understanding and figuring out, you know, there, there's a lot of tools that an agronomist, you know, like myself who can, who can draw upon. It doesn't always have to be, well, I like cover crops, so you need to like cover crops. It can very much be, you know, there's lots of ways of growing crops. There's a, there's a million different ways of growing a crop. And some of those are going to get you closer to having healthy soil after it's all said and done after that cash crop cycle. And some of them are going to take you away from that. Yeah. And not only in that cash crop cycle, but in the interim, how do we get to where consistently we're treading forward towards a healthier system, a healthier soil system with more diversity, with more mycorrhizae development, with more biological activity so that it becomes less burdensome to be a farmer or a rancher. And that's, that's, I think, a goal that everyone can appreciate. Sure. Well, you seem to be doing a good job at it. <laughs> I like the work I do. And I, I like working with the farmers and ranchers that I get to work with on a real regular basis. It's not always easy and frequently is it easy. Uh, we live in, in this arid climate. We're drawing from water resources that are over-appropriated and we know it. And we're trying to struggle and grapple as communities to rectify that situation and still, um, you know, have cash flow in, in the farming and ranching operations and, and be able to, you know, afford uh, luxuries like having an agronomist who knows about soil health. Right. These are well, all they're lucky considerations. To have you. Yeah, they're lucky to have you. Oh, well, thanks, Martin. So besides, of course, we have the, the drought this year was um, 36% of normal. Mm-hmm. And that's for the snow melt, correct? Yeah. So the so it, it's a moving target yeah. to, to measure snow melt. Well, to anticipate when the snow melt is coming, how much is actually going to show up in the river? Right. Because we have events like massive windstorms, because yeah. we have uh, huge areas of bare ground in our desert plateaus, yeah. or even small areas of bare ground in our in our desert that blow out effectively and and then create cascading effects of massive windstorms developing out of these small areas that then bring a lot of dust onto the snow snow melts faster than anticipated snowpack goes down fast instead of slow we get flash you know effectively a huge amount of evaporation off these peaks that previously we weren't anticipating previously weren't experiencing so there's a lot of complications and also Dry winds can evaporate a lot of snow, sure, and it's a cause sublimation of the of the snowpack into the, back into the clouds, and right. it never comes into the river, and never comes into the yeah. ditches. And so, we can be looking really good at the tail end of winter, and then a few weeks into spring with some massive dust storms, some massive wind storms, suddenly the snowpack can go away. Yeah, it's not that somebody came and stole it, right? But it's not there in the ditch, and right. so though, yeah, we're challenged with this. The ridification uh, cycle that we're in and we're challenged with how to deal with that. And, and at the same time, because we've over-appropriated water, we've overdrafted our aquifer resources, how to build that back because not only is this state mandate, but it makes sense to get water back in the system because it's not an, an infinite resource. Well, that seems to be a challenge in a lot of areas like California and I'm sure in the Midwest. So we appreciate the the, the time and the knowledge um, that you've had in sharing your your information with us. Um, any parting thoughts to um, farmers that might be, or agronomists for that matter, that might be, you know, facing similar challenges um, in other places? Yeah, something I've learned over time is going whole hog from one thing to another 
and sudden switches from this to that often have a lot of heartburn involved. And so, you know, taking, taking all your acreage and saying, okay, tomorrow I'm going to become a regenerative farmer and I'm going to do everything that the YouTube, YouTube gurus say ought to be done. Often those are years that you look back and you say, why did I do that? And realize that some amount of caution is merited no matter what, you know, going all in is infrequently the thing that's going to save your farm or, or make it so that everything works. And you, these are biological systems Took probably took a long time to get them in the situation or the status that they're in. Perhaps they're highly functional systems or perhaps they're not functioning as, as high as you want them to be, but figuring out what are some critical changes that you can affect and try out without risking the entire farm is critical. I've seen it in, in, in farmers here in, in the San Luis Valley, farmers in, in the Western Slope of Colorado, farmers in California who've related, we pushed the pedal a little too fast on, on making changes and it bit us in the butt. We, we probably need to be cautious about when we're making big changes, just exactly how much exposure we have in making those massive changes and, and learning. And, and when you're, when you're doing these changes, don't make them so big that you can't keep track of them. So when you're implementing new cover crops, when you're implementing a, a massive change to your system, make sure that it's somewhere that you can keep tabs on. So, you know, you know, if it's a failure, why it failed, or if it's a success, why likely did it succeed? So you can repeat it or at least try to, that's that, that would be the, the caution or the, you know, the thing that, that I would advise anybody who's thinking about making some changes and everybody will need to make some changes to something right. and, and how to go about that. Very good. Well, thank you, Patrick, for your time and knowledge, and I appreciate you sitting here with me and discussing this. Yeah, thanks for coming to our Sandless Valley. I hope more people can see it. It's a lovely place, not heavily populated, and that's kind of nice, too, but uh, it's okay. a great place to visit. Great. Thanks. Thank you. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Additional information about this episode and related resources can be found at atra.incat.org. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to Voices from the Field wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Rich Myers. ATRA, Voices from the Field, is produced by the National Center for Appropriate Technology, headquartered in Butte, Montana. It's supported by the USDA Rural Business Cooperative Service as part of NCAT's ATRA Sustainable Agriculture Program. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this recording are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the USDA or NCAT. We'll catch you again next week, and until then, keep on farming.